All right, what's up? I'm, I'm Jordan. I'm here to teach the Bible, so let's do it. Open up your Bibles. Um, yeah, I didn't expect a woo there. Let's go, Bibles. Bibles are fun. Um, no, no, like get them open right now. That'd be great. Uh, so pull it up on your phone. If you got the physical Bible, whatever, flip open to Philippians. It's uh, towards the end of your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, the, the reason why this book is called Philippians is because it was a letter written to a church in a town called Philippi, hence Philippians. The letter was written by Paul, who was an apostle who wrote a good chunk of the Bible, a good chunk of the New, the New Testament. And here is the, the connection that Paul has to the church at Philippi, is Paul was at a church planning conference, a lot like the one we just got back from, just with less LED screens. And uh, he was at a church planning conference, and he was talking with his friends about where they should go and who should go where, and they got in an argument about it, and they were trying to figure out where they were going to go. And then Paul was in Troas, which is a coastal city in modern-day Turkey, and he got this vision of this Greek guy that said, hey, can you come over and tell me about Jesus? And that's all he needed, so Paul just moved. He just left, and he sailed uh, over to Greece, and then he came to this town called Philippi, and his whole game plan was, I'm going to roll into the city, I'm going to start talking to people about Jesus, and I think God's going to change the world through it. And then he did. And now we've got a book from it, which is crazy. And so he walks into the city, and he meets this prominent businesswoman named Lydia, who became one of the primary founders of that church. So he meets Lydia, he talks to her about Jesus, and then she decides to get baptized, essentially on the spot. She got baptized in this river right outside of the city. So I actually had the chance a few years ago to go to Philippi. And so I got to stand right outside of like where Lydia got baptized. So I think we got a photo of that. There I am, right? You know, just, just grinning. I, I was young then. Um, and, uh, but like we know almost exactly where she got baptized. There's, there's a road, an ancient road that goes right out of the city to this stream, essentially. And that's where believers would get baptized. So that's where Lydia got baptized. And then I think we've got another one of like a big open, yeah, big open space. So this is what's called the Agora, which is like the marketplace. So this is where Lydia would have sold like the goods that she was producing. That's where they would have gone, gone grocery shopping and good stuff like that. Another prominent figure in this church was this Philippian jailer because Paul was put in prison when he was in Philippi. And I think we've got a picture of a jail cell that they've uncovered in Philippi. So we don't know if this is the exact one that Paul was in, but if it's not the exact one, it's really close, which is crazy. I got to stand right outside of it. And so Paul is in prison, and there's this miraculous escape that God provides, and the jailer sees this miraculous escape and is like, I believe, I'm a Christian. And he gets baptized too. And so Paul sets up this little church with this jailer and with Lydia and with some of their friends, and then he leaves, and this church grows and impacts the whole city. And so Paul writes this letter of Philippians back to his old friends, you know, probably wanting to tell some stories of the old days when he was in prison there and the startup days of the church, but to encourage them about their life and their walk with Jesus. So here are some of the main themes of the book of Philippians. If you're a note taker, write these down, pay attention to them, try and look for them throughout this series that we're doing. A uh, couple main themes of Philippians is unity, unity within the body of believers and love for each other, self-sacrificial love. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, a second theme is joy and rejoicing. 
And I want to talk about that this week. Now, but here's what I want to point out, is it's actually really odd that Paul is talking about joy. And not only that, this uh, letter, if you read this, I encourage you to read it on your own. It's incredibly encouraging. Like, the dude is just happy as he's writing this, which is wild because he was in prison while he wrote it. Almost for sure in Rome, he was in prison, so he's separated from his, fa- from his friends, from his family, and he talks a lot about death in Philippians, and that's not theoretical. That was very real for Paul because he didn't know if he would be acquitted and let go or if he would be tried, accused, and condemned to death. It was a very realistic possibility that Paul was about to be killed for his faith, and he eventually actually would be. So Paul is locked away from all the people he loves the most. He doesn't have his freedom. He thinks that he's about to die, and he writes a letter about joy. Why? How do you write about joy in those circumstances? What was it that was giving Paul joy that was outside of the circumstances of his life? Were any of you in like front row of the conference and just the bull rush? Was anybody up there? That, yeah, you, there's crowd participation. Anyone? No? All right, you were? We, one, two, okay, two, what's up, Josh? Took you a while, but okay, hey, Christian. Yeah, so when I ask you guys questions, you can like, you know, give me feedback. All right, so, so a few of you were up front on this bull rush, but if you didn't see it, I stood up there like videotaping this whole thing, and it was, it was crazy. There was this one kid that I watched that they're like lined up, they've got a string in front of them, and they're counting down like three, two, and this kid tried to get out in front, so he went under the rope in immediate instant justice. He ate it and about got trampled. It was terrifying, but also kind of amazing. Don't try and skip in front of the line, you know, but okay, that moment where there is like this horde of college students sprinting into a room screaming, If you were to watch that with no context, what would you think was happening? You might think that you're watching like the national championship of some sporting event that fans are running into, right? You you might think that that you're at like this crazy uh, popular concert. You might think you're at the running of the bulls. I don't know, but but you're you're for sure not going to think that you're at a worship event for Jesus. So here's my question is, Why are people reacting like that to Jesus? Like, why did the crew from Florida drive essentially 20 hours both ways to come to this conference? So they were essentially traveling as long as they were actually at the event. What was it that people were looking for? Was it the cool merch? I mean, the merch was pretty cool. Let's call it what it is. I didn't get any of it, but it was it was, it was good stuff, but it's, they're not there for the merch. Like, yeah, okay, why did you go? Yeah, you, you, you went to have a cool experience. You went to have fun with your friends, whatever. But I think for the majority of us, we went because we're looking for a vision for our life that's worth living for. We're walking into a room of 3,000 college students all saying, we want the kingdom of God to come to earth. And it does something to you when you walk into a room like that where people are saying, this is something bigger than myself that I want to get wrapped up into. You get a little look at what it would be like to live a life on purpose, to live a life for something that matters. And this is, this is one of the universals of this room. You guys are very different people from very different backgrounds. But here's what I know is true of all of you 
is every single one of you wants a purpose for your life. You want something that's worth living and dying for. And so this is what I want you to see is that you're looking for a joyful life. And here's what you will be tempted to think is the way to get joy in this life is through manipulating your circumstances to get the life that you've always wanted. Or you'll be told that crap by the marketing departments in this country or by your professors or by your friends or by almost anyone else that the way to joy is manipulate your circumstances to get what you want. But that's not actually true. It's failed you every time. Why has that never actually worked to this point in your life? It's, it's, the opposite is actually true. Here's what I want you to hear. Hear me on this. The opposite of joy is not a difficult life with hard circumstances. The opposite of joy is a meaningless life. The opposite of joy is triviality. What did you feel when you left the conference? Like, I know we all had different experiences or whatever. We didn't all have the same one, but at least what I felt, joy. This sense of like, just a breath of like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to live my life for. And, and there, was, there was freedom and I wasn't as bogged down by stupid stuff. Why? Did your circumstances change? No. Your perspective changed. Your purpose changed. You saw something that was worth living for, and it changed your joy. Okay, now I want to show you how Paul makes that argument in this text. How Paul is arguing that the means to joy is a purpose-filled life, not having the perfect circumstances for your life. So look at verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will have joy. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Okay. So he says, I have joy. Why? Pay back attention. Look back at verse 19. Why is he saying that he has joy? Because he knows that his situation will turn out for his deliverance. Okay, again, what is his situation? He's locked in prison. So here's my question. Is, is what Paul's saying that he knows for sure that he'll get out of prison, and so that's why he'll be delivered. Is he saying that I know my circumstances will get better, therefore I'll be happy and I can be joyful? No, because he doesn't actually know if he'll get out of prison. Look at verse 20. As it, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. So this is what he's saying, is whether he lives or whether he dies, he knows he will be delivered so he can have joy. How could that possibly be true? How could it be possibly be true that even if he dies, he knows he will be delivered? This is why. Because the thing that he wants most in his life is to honor Jesus. The thing that he's living his life for is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of his life. And here's what Paul knows, is that nothing can touch that purpose. No matter what goes wrong in his circumstances, whether life or death, Paul knows that he can honor Jesus Christ, and so nothing can touch his joy, because his joy is founded in something that's eternal, not temporal. 
He finds his joy in his purpose. So, so this is his logic. He's saying, I am joyful even though my circumstances suck because all I really want in life is to honor Jesus because Jesus is categorically better than anything else. Or the punchy way that he says it is in verse 21. For to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is a wild statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So those are essentially the two points that I want to talk about. What does it mean to live as Christ? And what does it mean that to die is gain? So let's start with to live as Christ. There's two things we've got to get at with this. We've got to get at what does it mean to live as Christ at an identity level, and then what does it mean to live as Christ at a behavioral level? So first, to live is Christ in your identity. Okay, here's what's true. In order for you to live as Christ, you have to become Christ. Now, that might sound like a weird or simple statement, but you've got to hear me on this. This is, this is foundational to your faith. You have to get this. In order for you to live as Christ, you have to become Christ. That's what the word Christian means, is little Christ. You have to become a little version of Jesus. But here's the problem with that, is you can't make yourself into that. You can't just label yourself Christian and call it a day. But that's what a lot of you are doing is that you've gone to church, you've shown up at Salt Company, maybe you read your Bible here and there, you do some Christian stuff, so you wear the Christian label and you think that that makes you a Christian. But that's not all there is to it. Here's the deal. I hate olives. Like, I, I hate, I'm angry that they exist. All right, specifically, the sliced ones creep me out because they look even weirder than the whole ones. They look like you're eating like little rubber tires and they kind of taste like it too, right? And you bite into an olive and it does like the weird squishy thing. And I know that because I try one once a year just in case I've started liking it, never to this point. And, here, and they're putting olives on everything, guys. They're, they're getting on nachos. They're putting them on pizza. Pizza, you guys. It's, why are they floating in like dirty salt water. I don't, okay, olives, hate them. Hot sauce, love it. New thing in my life, all about it. In the morning, it's Cholula. Cholula on your eggs, guys, all day. But here's the deal, once it's afternoon, you gotta go Frank's Red Hot. You gotta switch it up, okay? You can't do Cholula in the afternoon. It's all about Frank's Red Hot at that point. Okay, so here's the thing. If I ripped off the Frank's label off of my hot sauce and I put it, on a bottle of olives. And then I dumped that bottle on my food. How would that go? It would still suck because it's olives, not hot sauce. You can't just label stuff and think that it's going to fix what's going on on the inside. Okay. This is what I'm saying. A lot of you guys, you've labeled yourself Christian, but inside it's just olives. It, it, it's like, it's not good in there. There's lots of, there's sin, there's brokenness, there's, there's issues that you can't change about yourself and you slapping the name on Christian on you doesn't actually fix the problem. You need God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. God needs to actually transform you. Now he does that through a label, but he does it by making the label real in your life. I want to show you this, verse one. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So Paul just called every Christian in that church a saint. So we have weird conceptions of saints. Saints are not, biblically, saints are not historical figures who are really holy in the faith. Saint is every person who knows Jesus. Here's what the word saint means, is it means holy. It means set apart with moral weightiness. So question, how can you be a saint if you've got all that stuff that's wrong on you in the inside? Well, look at what word follows up saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's how you become a saint, is you need to be in Christ Jesus. This is what happens, is when you trust him, his moral goodness, his, his weighty goodness is transferred over to your account. And your sinful brokenness is transferred over to him. And he pays the consequences for your sinful brokenness. He's like, I'll trade you. And he hands you his moral weightiness. And his name starts to define and label your life. You come under the umbrella of his name. You cease existing. He starts existing in your life. That's what it means to live in Christ. You get lost in his identity. My guess is a lot of you remember where you were or how you found out that Kobe Bryant had died. And I know I've, I've talked about this before. It's, it's been on my mind. Um, I, was, I was walking around with Colin. We were going to a basketball game. He looked down at his phone, and he looked over at me, and he said, dude, Kobe Bryant died. Okay, here's what he didn't say is, dude, John Altabelli died. My guess is none of you know that name, or if you do, it's only in connection with Kobe Bryant. John was a baseball coach who was on the helicopter with Kobe. And my cousin actually coached with him for like a decade. Was one of, the, one of his best friends. And so in their mind, it's like John died. But to everyone else, because of the weight and the fame of the name of Kobe Bryant, the way that that thing was described was as the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant. Every other name on that helicopter gets lost in the weight of his name. Now, I know that's like a sad example. This is a more happy one, but the same concept applies. Is the weight and the fame of the name of Jesus Christ, when you are in Christ, overwhelms your name so that your name no longer is the most important thing about you. When somebody sees you, they just see Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's to live in the fame of his name, not yours. Now, that is incredible news for you if you've realized how bad you've screwed this thing up like we all have. If you realized how badly you've tarnished your name, that your name isn't what it was meant to be, here's the offer, is that you get to get wrapped up in the name of Jesus, which is so much better and so much more significant and so much cleaner than your name. But here's the problem is some of you still are trying to carry the weight of your name and you're not okay with giving that up for the name of Jesus. You still want to be famous. You want your name to be famous. You don't want his name to be famous. That's what you've got to decide if you want to follow Jesus is are you willing to let him be famous in your place? But if you decide to take on his name, 
you then can start to live as Christ, not just at an identity level, but at a functional level. So this is part two of live like Christ, is live like Christ at a behavioral level. So when I say live as Christ, or, or another way I could say that is your life is Jesus Christ, your temptation might be to think that what that means is that the only thing that matters in your life is super spiritual things. Maybe that was your takeaway from the conference, right? That, that the career you were pursuing doesn't actually matter. It only matters if you're a pastor or a missionary or a church planner or something like that. Maybe you think that, that your schoolwork doesn't really matter because reading the Bible and praying, like that's the stuff that really matters. It's all about the spiritual stuff. But here's the problem with that is that won't actually produce purpose in your life. That'll produce more meaninglessness. Because like 98% of your life is not quote-unquote spiritual in the way that you understand it. It's just normal stuff. And if you don't have a view for what that can look like in a life of Christ, you'll lose the meaning of the vast majority of your life. Everything in your life is about Jesus. His life and yours are intertwined to where they become inseparable to some senses. And so every little decision, every detail of your life is about him. That's what it means to live as Christ. Now you might go the other route as you hear me say that. Okay, good. Everything's about Jesus. It's all for him. So I'm just going to keep kind of doing the stuff I was doing. I'm going to tackle a little Jesus-y motivation on the end. No. That, that clearly, that can't, that is not a life worth living. That is not a purpose-filled life. So here's what we got to do. There's one filter through which we look through every decision that we make in life. The, the filter of verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That is the filter through which you make every decision in your life. That is your filter of purpose, is Jesus Christ, will he be honored by the way you're living? I was talking with a, a guy the other day who I'm, I'm starting to get to know, and he's an athlete. And so we were talking about the challenges of following Jesus and being an athlete. And so I, I asked him, like, hey, like, do you think you can do both of these things? Do you, do you need to give up your sport to follow Jesus? And uh, what he said was super interesting. I didn't see it coming. He's like, oh, I would give up my sport in a heartbeat if that's what Jesus wanted me to do. Like, I can make the big decisions for God, the kind of like sell it all, give everything away. I can, I can do that. What I struggle with is the day-to-day -day living a life for him. I can give up my sport forever for Jesus, but it's really hard for me to get up in the morning and read my Bible. It's really hard for me to show up at Salt Company and, and to commit to Connection Group and to learn how to honor him in every facet of my life. But that is the call of Jesus. What it means to live as Christ is that every piece of your life is about him, done for him, through his power. So let's look at this. Your schoolwork. That's for Jesus. That is not irrelevant to your faith. That's for Jesus. You should do great work. Don't skip class. Well, you know, like every once in a while, but not, not like, don't skip class all the time. Don't do it too much. Like, sit in the front and pay attention and listen. And actually go beyond that. Don't just listen. 
Think about how an amazing privilege it is that you get to be taught by the experts in their field in the entire world. They're teaching you things that are important about God's world. Love to learn. But here's the deal. Not only are you working hard, but you're also not obsessive. Because school is no longer your identity, Jesus is. School is not where you get your validation, Jesus is. So you do great work, but you don't do obsessive work. Your job. Colossians 3.23 says, Do everything as if working for the Lord, not for men. So here's what that means, is even when your boss isn't in the room, your boss is still in the room. Your human boss, even when they're not there, the one you're actually working for, your actual employer is God himself. He cares about your work. He delights in your work. So do great, honest work all the time because it's not just for you or it's not just for your boss. It's for him. It's an act of worship to him. Where you live, your dorm floor, your apartment, whoever you live by. Okay, listen to this. God, thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, whatever, He looked forward into the future and he saw people who he wanted to introduce himself to. He looked ahead and he saw the person who lives next to you and he says, I want that person to know me. And you know what his game plan for that person to know him was? To drop you in that dorm with him. To put you in that apartment right next to him. So talk to them about Jesus. Yes, pray for them. Quit praying. Walk across the hall and talk to them. Have a conversation. Tell them about the hope that you have. Believe in the power of God to transform a life. Believe that it's worth the awkwardness because Jesus is worth it. Your money. Just a little background music for this one. Your money. Listen, money will not make you happy. Money is not yours and it will not make you happy. No, like, Listen, I'm serious. Money will not make you happy. The the most mental illness, the most depression is often in the richest countries in the world because money makes a terrible God. If you live your life to pursue money, you will be deeply unhappy and you will lack joy. Your success, everything that you have is God's. Like your skills, your talents, God gave you those. Everything that you know in life, God gave you that ability to do that. He built your brain so that you could know those things. Every accomplishment that you've ever had was only given to you because you could take another breath that God gave you. Every piece of success in your life is a platform for you to demonstrate what God is like to the world. Your emotions, your emotions are there to produce worship of Jesus. So if they're not producing worship of Jesus, change them. Stop listening to them, stop doubting, and decide to take God up on his promises to believe him and enjoy him. Your emotions are for him. Your past and your future, your past, even if your past was really screwed up, God was out in front of it manipulating all of the bad circumstances of your life into your good, even if you don't fully understand that. He was out in front of your life the whole way, developing maturity and goodness in your life, even if that was really hard, and your future. Everything else in your life that's coming in your life is for Jesus. Open up your hands and say, Jesus, you can have whatever you want of my future. It's for him. Your time. Your time is a resource to be used 
for the kingdom of God. You're not entitled to it. It's not your own. It's his. It's given to you by him for him. Okay, now, I realize that that whole list I just did is fairly intense. That that's kind of a lot to take in. Right, but here's why I'm telling you this. I want you to remember what we said at the beginning of this message, that a joyful life is not an easy life. A joyful life is a purposeful life. And so I'm telling you to hand over your life to Jesus and to live every facet of your life for him because I want your joy. I want you to experience what it's like to live for something that matters. Jesus matters, so live for him. It's the best life you possibly could live. The Bible Speaks Today commentary says it like this. The whole life may be summed up as the progressive abandonment of everything else in the interest of possessing more and more Christ. That's what it means to live as Christ. So what does it mean that to die is gain? Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. Okay, do you see what's happening here? Is Paul is having this hypothetical debate with himself about it, whether it would be better for him to live or better for him to die. And that seems like... That should be a fairly easy question to answer. And Paul actually says it is an easy question, just differently than a lot of us would think. He said, this is actually really easy. It's better to die. Feel the weight of that. This is what he says, is that to die is gain. Not loss, gain. Why? Because to die is to meet Jesus Christ face to face. And when Paul says to die is gain, to add to your life, what he's saying is that Jesus is more valuable than anything else in the world. That if you had one of those old scales that you put stuff on and they go back and forth, if you put everything good in this world, think about everything good in your life that you're looking forward to the relationships that you hope to have someday, maybe the family that you want to have, the career that you want to have, every good adventure, every great memory that you want to create, everything good on this entire planet, if you put that all on one side of the scale and you put Jesus on the other side of the scale, he far outweighs it and it's not even close. That is how good Jesus is. That's how valuable Jesus is. And so what that means is that you can't lose. You live, you live to honor Christ. No matter what happens, no matter what goes wrong, you can't lose. You die, you just gain eternity, you gain Jesus. You can't lose. Do you understand that if you actually believe that, how fearless you would be? How joyful you would be? Can you imagine the purpose that you would live with if you actually believed that to live was Christ and to die is gain? And if it's true in death that giving up the world in order to have Jesus would be worth it in death, wouldn't that also be true in your life? That in this life, 
if Jesus is eternally valuable, if he's so weighty in his goodness, wouldn't it be true that to give up anything that you have to in order to get him, wouldn't that be the best life you could possibly live? Wouldn't it be worth it? So why in the world would you hold anything back from him? Why in the world are you messing around living your life for something that's insignificant? Why in the world would you not hear the vision that we talked about at the conference? Why would you not give yourself to a story that's bigger than you? One of the moments that I'll remember from the conference was Sunday morning when Mark asked us to sort of just take a moment and get on our knees before God and offer our lives to him. And I, I got on my knees, put my hands out, and I just prayed a, a simple prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere, anyhow for you. Whatever you want with my life, you can have it. And look, I wasn't like super faith-filled in that moment. I was actually pretty freaked out because God's answered that before and it's kind of crazy. So I was scared, but you know what else I was? Joyful. Because that's what I want my life to be about. I don't want to waste my life. I want something that's worth living for. And so I prayed a simple prayer after that of God, don't don't let me ever move from this place. For the rest of my life, I want to be on my knees and on my face before Jesus saying, you can have whatever you want of my life because you are valuable, you are good, you are the thing that I want the most. You guys in? I want you to be in on that with me. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for the vision that you give us for something different than just our own name and our own dreams. And that's a really hard call in a lot of ways, God, and, and we're pretty bad at it. So we just confess. I confess. I want that to be true of me, but it's, it's not true of me most of the time. And we're all prone to forget that. But would you just keep us coming back, Jesus? Would you keep reminding us that there's nothing in the universe more valuable than you? There's nothing else worth living for. And would we be people who just say yes to whatever you want, who are convinced that that's a good life? Because it is. And, and Jesus, I want you to be my identity. I... I don't want to live in my sin. I, I don't want to live in my mistakes and my failures. I don't want my name over my life, Jesus. I want your name over my life. I want your name over Salt Company. I don't want this to be about us or about a show. I want this to be about you. And so your name, Jesus, your name over this ministry. And God, I pray for people who have had a moment of clarity and have decided to do something for you because they loved you not out of guilt, but just because they saw you and they loved you, God, help them to actually do it. God, for the, the people that are thinking about going on a church plant, God, would they just do it? Stop talking about it and do it. For the people that, that made promises to you about 
time they wanted to spend with you or people they wanted to share the gospel with. Give them the ability, God, to just follow you and figure out that it's awesome. Pray the same for myself. Pray that over all of us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.